today on Against the Grain, when local authorities responded to Occupy Oakland by issuing stay-away orders, a debate arose that featured differing notions of what constitutes political activity. I'm CS. The political sociologist Emily Brissett makes that argument and describes what animated and constrained Occupy Oakland coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Ten years ago, they took over the area in front of Oakland City Hall. On what was dubbed Oscar Grant Plaza, they set up an encampment. It was dismantled by police. They set up tents again. The police evicted them once more. After engineering two shutdowns of the port, Occupy Oakland tried to appropriate the long-vacant city-owned Kaiser Convention Center. Amidst all the confrontations with police, all the tear gas and beanbag rounds and other forms of repression, Occupy Oakland sought to do something in and to the plaza. They sought, according to Emily Brissett, to reconceive social life outside of capitalism and commodification. Brissett, a political sociologist, has written an essay about Occupy Oakland and the matter of stay-away orders, which required certain occupiers to stay a specified distance away from the plaza. The debate generated by the stay-away orders, Brissett contends, featured conflicting notions of the political, of what constitutes political activity, of whether or not Occupy Oakland was engaging in politics. Emily Brissett is assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Bridgewater State University. Her article, Restraining the Political Through Stayaway Orders, The Case of Occupy Oakland, appeared in the journal Social Justice. When Emily and I connected recently, I asked about her impressions of and participation in Occupy Oakland. I think I would say that what's most memorable to me is actually less what I saw and more what it felt like. It was quite an intense experience, Um, really heady days of a lot of excitement and exhilaration and exhaustion and worry and anxiety, you know, heightened emotions and feeling of being really alive. I didn't spend a lot of time at the camp in its initial phases, right? So my partner and several of my friends from school were very much involved in Occupy Oakland, um, jumped right into it, were there all of the time. Um, and I kind of held back a little bit. I wasn't really sure um, what I had to offer. I don't consider myself an organizer by any means. Um, and so during the time that the camp was in existence, I was really only there on the days of like major actions. Um, I attended maybe one or two general assemblies during that time. And, and I brought my kids with me. Um, and so it was the, the kids stuff that stood out to me the most, particularly around Halloween. So there was a pinata and, you know, pumpkin carving and those kinds of things for the kids to do and a little trick or treat around. Um, it was just, you know, this really kind of heightened sense of, of community and connection and, you know, people caring for one another that I think is what what has stayed with me the most over all of these years and stood out to me the most at the time. So we're talking about Occupy Oakland, and and let's spend a little bit of time on the Occupy movement more generally. Remind us why the Occupy movement in the U.S. first emerged in the fall of 2011. The movement really emerged as a response to the ongoing effects of the Great Recession. So, I mean, it was three years on, but the foreclosure crisis was still ongoing. Um, We had really high levels of economic inequality that I think have only increased over the last decade. Um, And there was a lot of just frustration around the fact that Wall Street had been bailed out. Um, The banks were made whole, but folks who were losing their homes and who had lost their jobs and were struggling to put food on the table, there was never any real help for ordinary folks. 
And so the movement was in part to kind of shine a light on those conditions, on the immediate effects of the Great Recession and the kind of the events that led up to it, all the speculation and the real estate market um, and those kinds of things. But it was also about you know, the, the compounding effects of decades of neoliberalism, right? So years and years and years of policies that were, you know, and, and budget decisions that had stripped municipal governments of the ability to provide the things that people need to, to live well and to live sustainably. Um, and so by the time we get through the Great Recession and in, in that period, cities found themselves having to make really difficult decisions with reduced tax bases and those kinds of things. You know, so we were seeing a lot of cuts to social services, to um, school closures and library closures and transit fee hikes and those kinds of things. And so the movement, you know, when it started in New York in the fall of, in September of 2011, was really about Wall Street and about the, you know, the 1% that had manipulated the economy and politics in this country to to benefit themselves and you know left everybody else to kind of pick up the pieces and and to move on in the wake of all of the disruption and dislocation that that you know their kind of speculation and their their recklessness had bred but once it got outside of new york once it landed in different towns and cities across the United States, it was really about those local conditions. It wasn't really about Wall Street anymore. You know, we still had the slogan about the you know, drawing attention to the 1%, but it was very much about what are the decisions that are being made at the local level? What are the conditions like here? What are the unmet social needs and social problems that maybe we can come together and collectively start to, to address and to reimagine um, how we can make cities and spaces livable for people again. Well, let's talk about kind of Oakland locally. What were the problems and issues local to Oakland that Occupy Oakland sought to address and in some cases oppose? I mean, over the course of Occupy Oakland, the particular issues that the movement took on kind of expanded. So initially it was just a kind of coming together trying to figure out what what is it that we want to do right what is it what is it that brought us all here to this space what are the issues that we see happening in the community what is it that we most want to kind of focus our energies around and at first you know while the camps were in existence the energy was really directed at trying to figure out you know how can we reimagine uh social life and to kind of create new ways of being outside commodified structures and so on. Um, once the camps had been evicted, there was a greater urgency around kind of tackling various problems in the city and finding a different way of kind of harnessing the energy that was there. Um, and so one of the things that Occupy Oakland took up in the fall was anti-foreclosure work. So December 6th was a national day of action across the whole Occupy movement. Um, a day against foreclosures. And so, you know, Occupy Oakland participated in that. And then out of that grew the foreclosure defense group that did a lot of work around that. Um, we had two port shutdowns that were in part about trying to draw attention to the circulation of commodities and, and capital through the port and how it, in many ways that's extractive um, and exploitative and wasn't really making um, a contribution to ordinary people's lives in the city. The second one also had to do with the longshoremen's struggle up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, their contract negotiations and trying to kind of be in solidarity with them. There was a lot of labor solidarity work that Occupy Oakland was engaged in. Into the spring, we started doing work around transit fee hikes and trying to organize AC transit riders around around that issue. Um, and then just trying to like, be a, a presence in, in communities. We had a number of barbecues through the spring. I was just trying to be a place where people could come together and create community and have good food and hang out and those kinds of things. AC Transit being the, the local bus service in the East Bay. Um, this issue of uh, prefigurative politics of enacting a kind of politics or a way of life, a way of social and community and political life that you, you want to see, you want to have realized. 
is, as you mentioned, important to Occupy and to Occupy Oakland. Uh, what were the various functions being carried out by the occupiers in the plaza in front of City Hall, just in terms of taking care of the needs of people who are camping out there or visiting, um, and also in terms of strategizing, meeting, uh, just doing the business of figuring out what to do and how to do it. Right. So there was, you know, I, I mean, when I think about prefigurative politics, I think about it on several different dimensions, which your question kind of points to, right? So there's the question of, you know, how do we um, reimagine decision making and who makes decisions and who gets to participate in, in those decisions? So the, the sort of natural response that Occupy developed to address that was was the General Assembly. That was where all decisions for the movement took place. So um, when the occupation started in Zuccotti Park in New York, they created a General Assembly. And so that became kind of a template for other occupies. And so, you know, we had ours as well. And that was, again, where all of the decisions got made. We used a modified consensus decision-making process. So any proposal that came before the General Assembly had to have 90% support in order to pass. And so it was a space where folks could come together and kind of talk and hash out um, various issues and make collective decisions about, you know, what the camp needed, but also what kinds of actions, you know, we might want to take and those kinds of things. Um, so that's one dimension of the prefigurative politics is that question around decision making and who, you know, who becomes empowered to make decisions and in what way. But there's also that question of, of living together, right? And, and that was very much at the heart and soul of what Occupy was, particularly when the camps existed, was that coming together and living together in public and meeting the whole range of needs that, you know, living entails. So there was a committee that was dedicated to providing food to folks in the plaza. Um, and that persisted long after the camps had been evicted, that list that desire to feed people and to have hot food there and a place for people to come together and to, to have that basic physical and, and sort of communal nourishment. Um, there were also medics in the camp who took care of basic sort of health needs. Um, so anything from, you know, folks that might be experiencing, you know, an asthma attack or needing basic first aid and those kinds of things. You also had mental health folks in the camp who were there, you know, providing what services and support they could for folks that might be experiencing various forms of, of mental health crises. Um, there was, as I mentioned before, the, the children's space. So you had folks that volunteered their energies to just create a space that was kind of inviting and calming for kids to come and hang out. Um, had a lot of different activities for for them to do, and you know, just kind of a space that was a little bit to the side of all the hustle and bustle, um, where they could still be part of what was going on in the camp, but maybe kind of a dedicated space for them. There were also, you know, different working groups that developed or different workshops that took place, you know, helping to kind of build capacity and build skills. So one of the issues that folks kind of recognized early on and and, and started organizing and kind of working collectively to, to try to strategize and solve was around just basic conflict resolution um, and issues of sexual harassment and those kinds of things, right? Like how do you address those kinds of interpersonal issues and the potential for various forms of violence within the camp without, without relying on the police to do so? Occupy Oakland had early on made a decision that the police were not going to be welcome inside the camp. And so then that meant that any of those kinds of problems that for many people in ordinary daily life, you know, they might kind of hand off and defer to the police to address became issues that the movement had to figure out how they were going to address those things directly. Um, and so, you know, how do you deal with people who might bring bad energy or um, just be kind of difficult to deal with. That's Emily Brissett. She's a political sociologist based at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. 
We're talking about an article Emily wrote for the journal Social Justice. It's called Restraining the Political Through Stay-Away Orders, the Case of Occupy Oakland. How did city officials, Oakland city officials, first respond to Occupy Oakland when it set up its first encampment on October 10th, 2011? I mean, I think initially they were a little unsure how to deal with with Occupy Oakland. To this point, social movements in the United States had become kind of formulaic. Most typically, you know, when when movements would stage actions, they would negotiate with city officials in advance. They would seek permits for their march routes and those kinds of things. And Occupy Oakland didn't do any of those things. And it was also imagined itself and set itself up as as a leaderless movement. Um, So there weren't any spokespeople uh, for Occupy Oakland, nobody that was delegated to negotiate any terms with the city. And so initially, my reading of the situation and and some of the internal emails that were eventually made public, um, they were kind of on the back foot trying to figure out how do we... uh, deal with this movement that doesn't conform to any of our expectations about how movements are supposed to behave. And so initially it was just sort of a, well, let's just kind of see where this goes <laughs> um, and, and kind of, you know, sit back and, and, and watch what happens. And that lasted for a short period of time before they made the decision a couple of weeks in to evict the camp. Right. So at some point they decide to to evict the camp, to literally eject the occupiers from the plaza. What kind of tactics do they use at that point? So on October 25th, that morning, the, around four o'clock in the morning, um, OPD came into the camp and basically just kind of started tearing everything down and sort of violently, forcefully evicting folks from that space. That night, folks came back out to try to reclaim the plaza, and they found that the the entire plaza had been circled with fencing. And not only was OPD there, but there was also police forces from several other jurisdictions. So, you know, their initial attempt to retake the plaza was thwarted because there was no way of getting in past those police lines and the fencing. And so folks uh, congregated there in the intersection of 14th and Broadway, and the police issued several dispersal orders, and the crowd refused to disperse. Police start lobbying tear gas. The crowd kind of scatters, but then regroups. Um, And it went on that way for hours. Um, And during the course of the night, Scott Olson, who was a a Marine who had been a veteran of the Iraq War, uh, was shot with a tear gas canister to really close range to his head and was critically injured, spent several days in the hospital with a brain injury. And that really helped to kind of galvanize support for for the movement. Um, so what we saw then was, you know, initial kind of hands-off approach, and then that really over-the-top police uh, presence, the use of tear gas, and what they call less lethal munitions, uh, beanbag rounds and those kinds of things to try to disperse the crowd. And all of that was unsuccessful. The police weren't able to achieve their objective. They weren't able to prevent Occupy Oakland from uh, regrouping and reassembling. The next night on October 26th, the movement came back. And that night, the police were ordered to stand down. And so occupiers started removing fencing and basically reclaimed the plaza at that point and set up a second encampment. And there's much more to be said about the uh, police repression. Uh, But I want to turn now to the focus of your piece, your piece in the journal Social Justice. The focus is on stay away orders and uh, what you call restraining the political. We'll get to the restraining the political part of your argument. But let's talk about stay away orders in the context of Occupy Oakland When did the use of stay-away orders against occupiers in Oakland begin in earnest, and for what reason? And, you know, I guess we should explain also what a stay-away order is or does. So the stay-away orders were first used against occupiers starting in early January of 2012. And so at this point, we had had two port shutdowns. 
The second camp had been evicted by this point, um, but Occupy Oakland had sort of reclaimed the plaza in a different vein by by holding a 24-hour vigil. And so there was constant Occupy presence in the park. There were folks there through the night, through the day, had an informational table set up. The kitchen committee continued to serve food and those kinds of things. And so Occupy was still laying claim to the plaza even after the tents were gone. And so the strategies of repression start shifting uh, during this time, during December into January. And that story of repression has really been well told by my partner, Mike King, who wrote a book, When Riot Cops Are Not Enough. And my dear friend, Lale Bebahanyan, who was kind of the heart and soul of the anti-repression committee for a while, who wrote her dissertation on, on this question of state repression as well. The stayaway orders come in as the state is expanding its kind of repertoire. So, you know, they had tried heavy-handed police repression, you know, riot cops early on that backfired. And so then there was this need to kind of find other ways of kind of maybe more quietly, more subtly trying to uh, demobilize the movement, um, really frustrate the movement. And the stayaway orders were, were used in, in, that, in that vein. So we have folks still in the plaza, still kind of keeping this visible presence. And in late December, early January, the police start having these sort of snatch and grab raids on the vigil. So they would come in in the middle of the night to see if anybody was sleeping. You know, they would bring snatch squads and identify different people who were considered to be key organizers or key to the kitchen committee or, you know, people that they knew were on probation who would be particularly vulnerable to being arrested and those kinds of things. And so we see the first stayaway orders being used against some of those folks um, who were arrested during the vigil raids. The stay-away orders are um, essentially a, a court order that prevents the person who um, is named in the order from being, in this case, in a particular place. So we typically think about stay-away orders or, as, well, there's two different, essentially two different versions of stay-away orders. You know, they name a particular victim and then that person who is given the stay-away order is told that they have to stay away from that victim, stay a, a particular distance away from that victim. And we typically think about this in terms of domestic violence kinds of cases, right? Or interpersonal violence kinds of cases where the victim is a person and the person being given a stay, stay away order is being told to stay away from that person. But stay away orders are also used where the victim is a place. Um, and that was the case here. So basically City Hall, Oscar Grant Plaza, was named as the victim of these occupiers, and they were being told that they had to stay some distance away from that place. Um, in some cases, it was 100 yards. In other cases, it was 300 yards. There was kind of a lot of ambiguity around what the, the boundaries of that were. So your article focuses on the public debate that arose around these stay-away orders. And you focus on three sort of groups that engaged in this debate very publicly in the sense of uh, op-eds that were published in local newspapers, court documents that were filed by organizations, um, and other public statements. Let's start with the county DA. So this is the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. The DA at the time was Nancy O'Malley, and the OPD, the Oakland Police Department. They issued public statements after the first stay-away orders were imposed. What did they—well, actually, let's start with the DA. What did she argue as a way of trying to justify the imposition of these orders? Right. So I should maybe mention that the DA felt the need to sort of come out and make this public statement— after January 28th, which was the day that Occupy Oakland had tried to um, reclaim and take the, the Kaiser Convention Center and to open that up as an indoor space for a new camp. Um, that day, there were several skirmishes with the police as the march tried to take the convention center. That night, the march was kettled and across the day, over 400 people were arrested. And that was when the use of stay-away orders really began in earnest. 
the DA filed charges against 12 of the folks that were arrested that day and sought stay away orders for each of them. And then coming on the heels of that, she releases this op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle explaining this new tactic that her office and the city were employing to try to tame Occupy Oakland, right, to try to rein it in. And her argument in that piece was essentially that Occupy Oakland had betrayed the the original vision of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and that it was no longer in step with, in line with what the larger Occupy movement was about, that it had devolved into essentially just criminal mischief and had been sort of taken over by violent anarchists who were, you know, just intent on on creating as much disruption and disorder as possible in the city. And that these tools were necessary in order to basically rein the movement in, rein those bad occupiers in who just wanted to wreak havoc and were no longer engaged in any sort of meaningful political protest or political activity. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Emily Brissett joins me. She's an assistant professor of criminal justice at Bridgewater State University. Her focus is on political theory, social movements, and critical criminology. And we are talking about an article she wrote for the journal Social Justice. It's called Restraining the Political Through Stayaway Orders, The Case of Occupy Oakland. And so how do you interpret the DA's comments? What was she trying to do or say about Occupy Oakland that, that you found uh, you know, disturbing in addition to the fact that you objected, no doubt, and you object today to this characterization of the occupiers in Oakland as some sort of, uh, you know, a renegade uh, destructive force. Right. So, I mean, part of what she was doing in that piece was trying to single out, to isolate, to define occupiers in Oakland as criminals to essentially you know carve them out from the larger occupy movement and to say that this is no longer political right so basically depoliticizing what occupy oakland was and what it was doing um, the various issues that it was still kind of organizing around and raising and to say it's not organized for political impact it's not none of this is really addressing the political problems that Occupy Wall Street had identified, you know, if they really wanted to be political, if they really wanted to get their voices heard and to have significant political impact, then they would direct their attention to Washington. Um, and in lieu of that, right, by kind of just engaging in these forms of direct action and what she was characterizing as violence, senseless and criminal behavior in Oakland, had ceased to be political and had become criminal. And you're right that the Oakland Police Department, the OPD, also highlighted the illegal activities being carried out at the Occupy Oakland site. Um, so I imagine you see the OPD as also depoliticizing Occupy Oakland? Yes. I mean, there was a concerted and coordinated effort across different levels of city government and the Alameda County District Attorney's Office. Definitely around January 28th and in the aftermath, they had come together and coordinated their strategy, which was to to depoliticize the movement in this way, to say that it is not a political, it, this is no longer a political activity. Um, I think maybe to kind of raise a question of whether it ever was, but, um, but certainly in that moment that that occupiers in Oakland weren't engaged in political activity, but were just engaged in, in sort of what they were characterizing as senseless activities and criminal activities. So things that didn't really read to them as political. So things like continuing to feed people on the plaza, that was, was gestured to as one of those things that was just kind of a criminal nuisance, that it didn't have any political content, um, it was just simply you know, criminal behavior 
And so basically, you know, they needed to be cleared out of there for that reason, because this was no longer political. It was just, it, it had become a nuisance that needed to be cleaned up alongside the rats and the trash in the plaza. What do you make of then Oakland Mayor Gene Kwan's comment that Occupy was using Oakland as its, quote, playground? I see that as part of that same, I mean, it's a different variation of that same narrative, that this isn't political activity. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit softer of a version, I think, right? So she's not necessarily saying, look, these folks are criminal, although she did in other, in other iterations. But in that, in that claim um, that occupiers in Oakland were using it as their playground, I mean, she treats it basically like that, the, that Occupy Oakland was just kind of childish and everybody needed to grow up and kind of become more serious. And if they really wanted to address the important political pressing issues of the day, then they needed to find a different tactic because this was just... Um, this was just childish. And so, you know, that kind of patronizing tone resonated, I think, to some extent with folks that people who had become a little impatient with, with what Occupy was at that point. Okay, so another player, another voice in this public debate that arose around whether the stay away orders that were issued against occupiers in Oakland were necessary, uh, belongs to the ACLU. The American Civil Liberties Union was brought in. It represented a number of occupiers who were arrested. So how did the ACLU, I assume of Northern California, in op-eds and legal documents, how did they represent Occupy Oakland and how did they characterize these stay-away orders? So the ACLU gets involved in the wake of the January 28th arrests, um, representing four of the occupiers who were arrested that day to challenge their, their stay-away orders in court, um, basically to raise the question of the constitutionality of those stay-away orders. And so in the context of those legal filings, the argument that the ACLU was making was that, look, Occupy Oakland is a political movement is engaged in political activity, is engaged in political speech, and that what these stay-away orders do by preventing these named occupiers from being in the plaza is to restrict their First Amendment right to speak, and to speak particularly at that seat of governmental power, right? To, to be able to speak and to have their voices heard by local government. In the op-ed that, uh, that Risha wrote, the, the picture is a little bit broader. So in the legal filings, right, so they have to make the argument that the court can hear. Um, in the, the op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle, it's, it's written for a public audience, and so the, the framing of it can be a little bit looser and a little bit broader. And there, you know, there's some suggestive kinds of ideas, kind of seeing that maybe Occupy isn't just about you know, that the issue isn't just about free speech rights, but it, there's something about the nature of democracy and people coming together and being able to hash out ideas and it being messy and complicated and sometimes disorderly and disruptive, but that's all to the good, right? That that's part of what hashing out ideas and coming up with, with political positions entails is that work of coming together and, and kind of trying to just figure out what the issues are and how to talk about them. And, and yes, sometimes that's messy and sometimes it's not um, entirely civil or, or you know, conform to a certain set of normative expectations. But if we want a vibrant democracy, then we have to kind of be comfortable with some of that. Michael Rischer uh, is, uh, at least was, a, an ACLU staff attorney. He used the term public square why did you find that important? I found that to be an interesting contrast to the way that the the court filings were were put together. So in the court filings, there was a lot of attention paid to the fact that Occupy Oakland was it had camped out and was making you know was being occupied there on the plaza in front of City Hall, and so making a great deal of out of the fact that this is the seat of local government. But in the op-ed and talking about the public square, that, that broadens the frame a little bit. 
the public square is, you know, a, a more kind of, I don't want to say boundless space, but it's not necessarily tied to government, not necessarily tied to those formal governmental institutions and to the state and state power and so on. But it could be something that exists wherever people come together. In this case, that happened to be in the shadow of City Hall, but the public square as this idea, as this place where people can gather um, and to, to kind of hash through ideas and to engage in various forms of um, communication and, and struggle and discourse and so on, it could be anywhere. It doesn't have to be tied to any particular governmental space or for any particular governmental end or even to kind of influence what city council might do or, or those kinds of things. It, it's kind of suggestive of a broader way of thinking about what's political, that it could be political just for people to come together um, and to be with one another and to, and to create community and social relations and new kinds of forms of organization and so on in, in that coming together. And yet you write that uh, Risher, Michael Risher, re-inscribed politics within a fairly conservative frame. So even though his use of the term public square might, might be encouraging, might uh, suggest a broader vision of the political than um, the ACLU, like you mentioned in its court documents, the ACLU defined politics and the political in terms of the state. Uh, yet you you don't see Risher moving perhaps as far as you and many other occupiers would have wanted. Right, because at the end of the day, he, he defines Occupy as a free speech movement. He says that what Occupy is ultimately about is this First Amendment right to free speech, which which is a very odd kind of framing of the movement because much of what Occupy Oakland was about and was engaged in um, was very real material struggles, right? Addressing the foreclosure crisis and school closures and hunger and, and those kinds of real concrete material problems in the city. And at least in Occupy Oakland, we didn't really think about what we were doing in terms of free speech, right? That that was not what the movement, um, what we were engaged in. We were engaged in a radical struggle to reconceive uh, social life outside of the normative expectations and the conditions of capitalism, right? Outside of commodification um, and not not petitioning government to make change, right? And that's essentially what I saw Richard doing at the end of that op-ed was kind of re-inscribing that anything that was political um, needed to basically be petitioning government to do something different. That it's essentially kind of a form, a political movement is essentially a form of supplication, that you're appealing to the constituted authorities, that you're appealing to elected officials to change course, to adopt new policies, to do something different than what they've been doing. Um, at the end of that piece, he celebrates that Occupy had you know, injected new issues into the public conversation and had pushed some elected officials to act in new ways. And that was essentially the, the limit of what he saw, the potential and the actuality of what Occupy was. It was it was a movement, it was a political movement insofar as it was doing those things, changing the public conversation and, and leading um, officials to kind of rethink policies or to act in particular kinds of ways. Emily Brissett is my guest. She's a political sociologist based at Bridgewater State University. She's a member of Women on the Verge, a scholar activist network dedicated to prefigurative politics and new forms of theorizing. She earned her PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley, and we are talking about an article that I discovered in the journal Social Justice. It's called Restraining the Political Through Stayaway Orders, The Case of Occupy Oakland. So the, the third prong, I mean, no, no doubt there were other voices weighing in on the advisability, the desirability, the necessity of these stay-away orders issued against occupiers in Oakland. Uh, was the Anti-Repression Committee of Occupy Oakland. And this Anti-Repression Committee and the Stop the Injunctions Coalition a separate group that organized against the gang injunctions 
issued in Oakland and for community self-determination, they issued a joint statement that addressed both the stayaway orders and the gang injunctions in Oakland. Uh, what points were made in that statement that interested you? Well, I think one of the, the key things that that piece does is to highlight the way that basically so much of, of community and social life is is subject to criminal potential criminalization. So the Anti-Repression Committee was one of the several subcommittees of Occupy Oakland. Um, and particularly after the mass arrest on J-28 kind of took on a, a sort of outsized role in Occupy Oakland dealing just with all of the flurry of court cases um, and all of the folks that were locked up and trying to figure out how to get folks out on bond and so on. Um, and so in addition to all of that kind of bail and court support work, the Anti-Repression Committee also saw part of its role as doing a bit of legal and political education within the movement and, and trying to kind of highlight the different ways that repression was working, the different forms that it was taking. And so in that spirit, really stepped in to contest the stay away orders, recognizing that they were sort of the new tactic that the state was using to try to demobilize and repress the movement, and that it needed a concerted response. Um, some of the folks within anti-rep were, you had connections with the Stop the Injunction Coalition folks. I believe one member was a member of both organizations. And so um, it seemed like that there was a productive conversation there to be had, looking at the parallels between the gang injunctions, which were criminalizing uh, people's presence in particular places, otherwise ordinary, everyday, perfectly innocent, perfectly legal activities. Um, they become potentially criminal if done by certain people in certain spaces. And the stayaway orders operate on a similar kind of logic. And so part of what anti-rep and the Stop the Injection Coalition were pointing to was the way that these tools really expand state power. By identifying and naming certain people and saddling them with these injunctions or these stay away orders, you essentially give police and prosecutors an, another tool in their arsenal. They already have incredible discretion in terms of who they stop and who they question, who they charge and what they charge them with and those kinds of things. But this adds to that repertoire and gives them additional, additional power to regulate people's behaviors, their mobility, their relations, um, and to really kind of upend their, their daily routines and their daily life, to inject a lot of anxiety, and to criminalize not just those individuals who are named in those orders, but also the broader communities of which they are part that are now subject to heightened surveillance and scrutiny um, because they might be harboring these people who are not supposed to be in these places. You write that to understand what Occupy Oakland was doing with its reclamation of the plaza, we must free the political from the tether of the state. Elaborate on that. For me, in thinking about how do we define, how do we theorize the nature of the political, that it's a mistake to think about it in narrow terms of the state and governmental institutions, but that really we need to think about the political much more expansively in terms of how do we how do we collectively live together how do we make the decisions that shape how we live together how do we create social relations um, and ways different um, forms of organization and ways of being together that express our values and that give structure to our lives and that that whole process is is political even if it's not taking place in the halls of Congress or through the voting booth and those kinds of things, but that it can happen in these spaces like the camps or in the General Assembly or in these subcommittees that are coming together and trying to you know, collectively make decisions and reimagine social relations and, and create new ways of being together. So would you say that kind of taking care of people's needs, even at the basic level of like, as you were saying, providing first aid, I mean, a lot of people might think of that as a, that's a private activity, right? I mean, you're just tending to somebody who happens to be injured. 
But are you suggesting that the political, the definition of that needs to be broadened such that it encompasses um, a range of uh, private activities or activities that we normally characterize as private? Definitely. I mean, and right, the, the feminist movement in the 1970s gave us that slogan that the personal is political, right? So thinking about the things that make life livable, the addressing basic human needs from things like first aid to putting food in people's bellies and taking care of children and those kinds of things, that, that all of that activity is necessarily political. Um, even if typically in the modern liberal state and the capitalist order, we, we shunt some of those things off behind closed doors and treat them as if they were private, treat them as if they, they had no bearing on public life. And, and so, yes, absolutely, right? Like the, all of those things that Occupy Oakland and the many parts of the broader Occupy movement were doing was taking those things that, you know, again, in, in the way that the movement was responding to decades of neoliberalism that had privatized so much, right? Had made all of those basic necessities of daily life, the responsibility of individuals and individual families and kind of said, here, you take care of it, but do it out of sight, out of mind. We don't want to think about it. Um, part of what the Occupy movement was doing was bringing all of that stuff out from behind closed doors, putting it out in these really central, visible locations, and saying, "No, this is this is this is what life is, and the basic conditions of life need to be reimagined, and we need to actually do some work to tend." Um, people's, people's well-being, right? And so what does that look like? Well, it looks like providing health care that's not commodified, right? Providing health care just because someone needs it. It, you know, involves feeding people, again, not in a commodified way, but just because, right, we all need nourishment in order to survive, and so on. So clearly, you were not so concerned about the effect on occupiers, of the depoliticization, the effort to depoliticize Occupy Oakland made by, you know, the Alameda County District Attorney, uh, the Oakland Police Department, city officials, because obviously the occupiers knew what they were doing. They knew that what they were doing was political. So it seems like you're, you're more concerned with the effect of that rhetoric, that depoliticization rhetoric on ordinary folks, right? People consuming media or kind of learning about this movement, not knowing a lot about what was going on uh, in downtown Oakland at the time. Um, how important is it for kind of that, that consciousness, that understanding of what is political to be diffused and to be understood and grasped, not just by hardened activists and organizers, but by uh, just people going about their ordinary business who, who maybe aren't politically inclined? I think one of the things that is so compelling to me about, about Occupy, about that experience, was the way that it really expanded the political imaginations of folks. So, I mean, it was, it was a unique movement that broke with standard um, social movement practices and it brought in lots of folks who might not have seen themselves as activists or who hadn't taken part in political uh, marches before or any kinds of things like that. And it, it gave them a, a different sort of experience of, you know, kind of expanded the sense of possibility. And so that was true for folks who who were kind of curious and what is this thing and like ventured into the park and saw what was going on and then kind of hung around a little bit more and got involved. Um, it was this transformative experience for everyone who was involved in it in various different ways. But I think that's kind of one of the things that is worth kind of holding on to and taking from that experience and from the movement is the way that it invites us to think about the political in this broader, more expansive way, in the ways that it had broken with the standard social movement mold, where it wasn't just about marching with everybody having the same kind of placards and signs and very clearly articulated demands. But it was like, oh, but we can come together and we can just kind of hash things out and it can be messy and we can figure out what are the problems that we want to tackle. 
And I think that model and that experience is really worth holding on to and thinking about what the potentials and the possibilities are of, of that kind of space, um, just in terms of the capacities it builds in people's, the way it expands political imagination. And all of that gets lost, right? All of the energy and the exhilaration and the groping and the yearning and the hashing things out, all of that gets lost if we subject Occupy to a very narrow kind of picture of what a movement is supposed to be or what is what is properly political. Um, and it wasn't just the DA or Oakland City officials who were engaged in that kind of depoliticization. A lot of social movement scholars were also like looking at the movement and saying, this movement isn't sufficiently political. It's not organizing itself to have a political impact um, and really missing the heart of what the movement was and, and the way that you know, addressing concrete material needs in the here and now and imagining and, and, and trying to live here and now um, a new way of being together is profoundly political. Um, and it, we do movements and ourselves and our possibilities for meaningful social change a real disservice if we think everything has to run through the state and at the end of the day what matters is voting and lobbying and, and those kinds of things rather than seeing what kinds of collective capacities people themselves can create and nourish and build when they come together in these kinds of spaces. Emily Brissett, political sociologist teaching in the Department of Criminal Justice at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. And we've been talking about her article, Restraining the Political Through Stayaway Orders, The Case of Occupy Oakland. It appeared in the journal Social Justice. Emily, thank you so much for your work and thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been, it's been a lot of fun to be here. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.